City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City, City Limits. Well, it's City Limits and it's the second Wednesday of the month. It's our normal energy day. We're going to be talking energy both in the first part of the program and also later on with our, with our guest. And uh, our guest, um, we can't quite tell you who our guest is going to be at this stage because let's, let's be, Zeb, or oh, better tell you who we are, I'm Kevin Healy, Zeb Peaks here with me. And um, we're, we're both sitting at our various homes at the moment, in fact, because um, we, we are pre-recording again these days. But one of the problems of this is that because of circumstance, we've been forced to do it in two halves this week. So we're actually recording this on Monday afternoon. And the second half will be on Tuesday morning. Uh, but at this stage, we haven't had a guest confirmed. We, don't, we think who would know it's going to be, but we had, hasn't yet been confirmed. So we can't quite announce who our guest is. But anyway. Flying by the seat of our pants a bit. Yeah. So there'll be a surprise guest in the second half. A couple of uh, couple of issues this week. There was uh, the Herald Sun's done it again. Let's kick off with them again. With Nadia, who got sprung on a um, presumably or allegedly snorting coke and uh, with friends and therefore breaking the coke thing as well. But the Herald Sun letters columnist came out totally in support of her and turned it into an attack on on the on the government on, on Dan and the government as they usually do in the Herald Sun. Uh, and one Connor says Martin Pakula saying Nadia Bartel should be embarrassed by her actions. Please look at your boss before lecturing others. And some one one just says I love you, Nadia. So he's obviously a real deep little thinker. Um, and but uh, only a couple um, sort of Andrea uh, says so we so she should be able to do whatever she wants without having to be bothered with silly rules that others need to abide by, which isn't a bad little one. And Kate has excellent, and in, in parentheses, influencing, because she's called an influencer, whatever that bloody will is. Uh, anyway, that, I just thought that was interesting that the Herald Sun turns even that into an attack on the government, mostly. Yeah, I'm not actually sure who Nadia Bartel is. Yeah, well, I think she was a model who married a footballer and they've oh, okay. since split up, but she's now called an influencer and she's just part of that social set that get around um, get around, and, and don't seem to do anything other than be influenced. And influencer, I think, means that people pay her to get other people to buy their products, I suspect, by by going online and telling them how good it is, yeah. Anyway, but, it, but she also apologised, I noticed she apologised and... Uh, and presumably, the way of the sound of the apology, it sounds like she'd never seen coke in her life before. It just happened to be there, and there you are. <laughs> if, it, if it was, we, we think at this stage, it's probably just alleged, isn't it? But uh, serious thing about women, of course, and you want, I'm sure you'll want to comment on this, Seb, is uh, what's happening to women in Afghanistan now. And yeah. at the weekend, a, a protest, and I think take a bit of guts to protest over there at the moment, but a women's protest... Um, was was suppressed and bashed up by the Taliban, and the um, women were da demanding to be included in the government, but they were beaten up. And the this is as the paper says, some of the first concrete evidence of harsh treatment by women of women by the group. And one participant who was 24 said the Taliban tried to route the gathering of about 100 women using tear gas, rifle butts and metal clubs or tools. She received five stitches to close a head wound after she was knocked unconscious with a flow, flow from one of the metal objects. Uh, when I tried to resist and continue the march, one of the armed Taliban pushed me and hit me with a sharp metal device. And um, they pushed everybody away and forced us to leave while chasing us with their spray weapons and metal devices. The Taliban kept cursing, using abusive language. And I thought one of the, I saw this on television, one of the more gutsy performances was a woman as a, as a Taliban was using a megaphone to exhort them to go away and doing the usual. She walked up and actually took it off him <laughs> and walked away wow. with it, which I thought was pretty gutsy. But anyway, yeah, I think it's... Um, you know, women are obviously about to uh, to face real difficulties over there, I think, um, unfortunately. Zip. Yeah. 
Yeah, wow, that's a really brave act from the protester. And even though the Taliban have been trying to have more of a positive spin in the media or a positive image, I mean, and perhaps trying to promote this idea that they're they're not as bad <laughs> as they as they were or something, but not as bad as they were and are, I suspect, at the same time. Yeah. 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 But of course, while while the Western world carries on about how terrible they are to women, and they certainly are, we also see this week in Texas that they've they've imposed and legislated the most the strictest and, and most awful anti-abortion laws uh, in America now, and a real challenge to Roe v. Wade, of course, which is the decision back in 1973 that allows abortion in America. But uh, it's quite a quite a worry because this their law, the law, in fact, the new law in Texas means that anyone can dob in anyone else who was even was involved in any way, which includes doctors, of course, with an abortion. Um, the person gets charged, but also the person who dobs them in is entitled to um, $10,000 US, about 13500 Australian, as, as thanks for dobbing in uh, someone to do with abortion. So it, it's, it's a very, very worrying law. Yeah, oh, it just goes to show that there can be abortion reforms and then they can be taken away so quickly, even if you know, abortion was already uh, difficult to access or even illegal. It can always get worse. Yes, and, and the Supreme Court has already refused to rule that it's it's against America's law, against the national federal American law. Uh, and of course, if it's challenged, and it could end up at the Supreme Court, which is now so stacked by Trump that it might well overthrow Roe v. Wade, which is a real concern, I think, long-term or even short-term. Yeah. It's, a, it's a real problem. Well, there was good news recently in Australia that Western Australia has recently made it illegal to protest outside abortion clinics. And yes, I, think, I saw that, yeah. Yeah, I think the, every other state had already had some sort of legislation around a safe zone, Um safe zones around abortion clinics so yeah that's that's good news in wa but of course the texas one you're going back in time i reckon women women are going to afford it or leave the state and go elsewhere and apparently already in the company in the in oklahoma city which is um near texas of course um they've shot up by double in the last few days women coming from texas to get abortions in in oklahoma city so it's the old story and again the in the the other side of that of course is women who can't afford it well what are they going to bloody well do yeah not everyone can afford that travel or uh, are able to take enough time off to to do that no so that's a that's a real concern um we also, just an interesting one this week as well. There's a couple of, um, there's a number of items happening in relation to the, um, in relation to the environment. And given that we're um, at our energy day, we could have a look at some of that stuff. I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, the one of the interesting ones is that the a bloke called Selwyn Hart, who's the United Nations top climate advisor, he says that Australia has a decade up to, well, roughly a decade, up to 2030 to transition coal workers and their communities to new opportunities under a plan that would eliminate the industry and advanced economics by economies by 2030. So he wants this to all, all advanced economies to be out of coal by 2030. And he says the, the Morrison government, as a matter of urgency, should commit Australia to net zero by 2050 and more ambitious 2030 ambition reduction. And keeping the planet from warming beyond one and a half degrees requires an urgent halt to coal. We know all this, but it's just, again, our government um, fighting what these people are trying to do. And at the same time, Barnaby Joyce has said or was told told the Liberal Party last week there would be a price to pay before he backs a more ambitious goal, whatever his price is, um, in terms of going to net zero. 
so it's really quite a it's really quite a problem again. And the the this bloke Hart said that it is increasingly clear that decarbonisation is inevitable and it is the greatest commercial opportunity of our age. If G20 countries, including Australia, choose business as usual, climate change will soon send Australia's high living standards up in flames. By contrast, if countries, including Australia, choose bold climate action, a new wave of prosperity, jobs, fairness and sustained economic growth is there for the taking. But uh, unfortunately, our government at this stage doesn't want to take it. Yeah, oh, we're just Australia is just so embarrassing on a on a world scale of, and then you know it's so frustrating that even the liberals are now managing to consider net zero, but then they've got pressure from Barnaby Joyce and and that national side to not do that. <laughs> Exactly, and the, uh, the the very good program on this station. Um, I don't know if you've heard it or not, but it's called um, Democracy Now. It comes out of America, and it's played two or three times a week on 3CR. There's two versions on Monday morning. In fact, one at about five o'clock and one at nine o'clock. But the one this week talked about the, the Ida, the um, the cyclone that hit America, hit um, Gulf of Mexico last week, and wiped out of course um you know louisiana uh now the area is home to a lot of the the fossil assets in america and the program pointed out that because of the storm caused a lot of problems in terms of environmental leakage and uh, because of you know during during the storm it it caused incredible environmental damage and in fact, there was a report in the paper in the last couple of days uh, that a private dive team was sent to find the source of a suspected oil spill spotted in the Gulf of Mexico after Hurricane Ida. And the UN, US National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration satellite images showed a kilometres long brownish black slick spreading in coastal waters about three kilometres off Port Fouchon, Louisiana, an oil and gas hub and this this area. And that was also pointed out on Democracy Now! that they were flaring off gas and doing all sorts of things during the, during the middle of the storm, all sorts of dangers to the environment. And the images appeared, back to this one, the images appeared to show the slick drifting about 20 kilometres eastward along the Gulf Coast. Uh, and Ida, Ida hit Louisiana, we know what hit Louisiana, and um, more than 900,000 electricity customers had their supplies cut off, etc. But extensive field observations indicate that Talos assets are not the source. This is one of the companies that um, that hired the Clean Gulf Associates to look at the spill. But mm-hmm. nonetheless, it's once again another factor in terms of the, a, a, a hurricane that certainly has been influenced by climate change, yeah. then causes more environmental damage for the very people who are causing the damage in the first place. So it's, it's, it's a vicious circle, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. That's, you know, it's happening everywhere. The bushfires that are made more extreme by and more frequent by climate change also releasing massive amounts of carbon dioxide into the air and huge amounts of causing huge amounts of environmental damage so it is a we are seeing a bit of that runaway effect interesting and now interesting as well that because we've talked many times on city limits about the pollution from vehicles and of course truck vehicles and, and, and freight vehicles using diesel. Diesel is the most dangerous of all of all those uh, fuels because its particulates are so tiny they get they burst through the lungs and can you know are carcinogens and um, are very dangerous. So it's interesting a report's come out uh, this week that Old trucks are causing about $200 million, this is an amazing figure, in pollution-related health costs nationwide. Um, this was this was a report brought out by a group called Ostroads, which is a peer, the parent group of the transport agency. So it's their own body that brings out this research right. and shows that aging heavy vehicles are affecting the public as the average age of Australian truck fleets is 15 years. It found replacing pre-1996 trucks could bring a health benefit of at least $744 million over seven years 
trucks at least 25 years old driven in urban areas result in an average pollution-related health cost of up to 91 cents for every kilometre they travel. And the inner West Air Quality Community Reference Group, which is a group that lists around the Maribyrnong area, set up by the state government, found Maribyrnong residents suffered higher rates of hospital admission for several illnesses, including heart failure and stroke. And the Maribyrnong Truck Action Group President Martin Wirt said the public shouldn't pay a massive price for Melbourne to be moving their freight. Um, so... Um, that's the government claims it's it's going to bring in lower emission stuff, but at the moment, of course, that's it. So that's another problem with the environment, of course. And transport creates transport. It's about what twenty two or twenty five percent or something of all air pollution is created by by transport. Yeah, and we talked last week about the sort of the state of um, freight by rail in Victoria and how that's quite dismal at the moment. But that could be part of the solution is moving more of our freight transport to rail instead of road. It certainly could. And yet the Westgate Tunnel that they're currently building, which has been held up, thank goodness, but which will probably eventually get built, is all about putting more and more trucks to the port rather than trains anyway. And But but certainly you're right. I mean, that if we could move more by freight and the idea of putting... Uh, modal interchanges on the edge of the metropolitan area so that you in fact keep more of the big big heavy vehicles out and at least transfer there uh, onto smaller vehicles with from rail is a, is a bloody good idea but uh, it's been talked about but but apart from apart from talk it doesn't seem to be happening too well mm, yes well I've found a couple of news items as well sort of related to energy one of them was an interesting article from Renew Economy that was talking about turf wars in the energy transition over who gets to own battery storage. So batteries are going to be really advantageous to own uh, in the future because they're just so useful. Um, so at the moment, every corner of the energy market, like generation versus network versus retailers, are kind of worrying about who's going to manage to get control over it uh, and people are sort of worried that it won't be regulated enough and that it will become a new sort of um, monopoly. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? We've been saying for years that if they could have privatised the sun and the wind, they would have solved the problem of renewable energy years and years ago. Yeah. Uh, but Now people are managing to figure out ways that they could do that, basically. Well, that's so. Well, we're now seeing... A lot of the lot of the big companies, or the very companies that have caused the pollution in the first place, are now saying well, they're going to invest in things like the um, the offsets. So they'll actually sell offsets to themselves, presumably. But they they they've suddenly decided the the offset, the carbon offset industry, could become a major industry in the world. Uh, so, in fact, the very people causing the problem are now trying to profit from trying to solve the problem they created. It's, it's a vicious circle again. Yeah. And the battery seems the same. I mean, they're moving in. Suddenly, they've realized there could be money in batteries, so they move in and away they go. Yeah, and, you know, it is good news that battery storage has become this important and this sort of desirable because it does show that renewable energy is becoming more and more important regardless of what the federal government is still trying to hang on to. But, yeah, it's just going to be another opportunity for capitalists. Nothing's, nothing's of any value unless you can make some money out of it, Sam. We've got to you know, yeah. think about that. Yeah. Oh, good heavens. I mean, we can, you can't just do things because they're worth doing um, for the good <laughs> of society, for goodness sake. I mean, no. Ridiculous. Good, good God, no, this is ridiculous. <laughs> um, the, the, the another irony in terms of, um, of the environment is that people whose job is to, well, they've retired now, so I think we'll we won't say anything about that. But um, a group called the Australian Security Leaders Climate Group, which seems to be a group of ex-military people, okay. they've even come out and said Australia must ship to zero emissions as fast as possible to avoid worsening climate change-induced conflict and wars. Mm. And they're led by a bloke called Chris Barry. I think we all know of Chris Barry. He's the, he was the head of the Australian Defence Force. He's retired now. Yep. 
the the report which was released last Thursday uh, called for all of government push to prevent quote devastating climate impacts, including the creation of an office of listen they put of course impacts and then to to prevent it, including the creation of an office of climate threat intelligence. And the group joins a growing list of vids and etc. to pushing, trying to push Morrison toward a better position. And they, um, Barry was said that the dangers that climate change impacts post international peace and security are real and present. Climate fueled water and food insecurity have mixed with instability, leading to the collapse of governments and civil wars, as we've seen in the Middle East and sub-Saharan Africa. Australia has suffered inaction and a lack of leadership, according to the group, that has left the nation ill-prepared for the security implications of devastating climate impacts at home and in the Asia-Pacific, the highest-risk region in the world. Uh, so there, there's another group that's, that's, um, that's calling for it. On the other side of that, there's a, a conservative former national senator, now retired from the Senate, uh, Ron Boswell, and he's he's urged the government to stop um, immediately stop banks blacklisting the coal industry, saying pressure from offshore capital markets and governments was a blatant form of foreign interference. Apparently, according to him, and he he raves on about um, he immediate wants an immediate change to competition law to prohibit banks from denying credit and other financial services to the coal industry and says Australia's parliament is the body that should determine what what activities are legal in the country. This is a clear example of foreign multinationals dictating the economic policies of this country, he said. And our weak local banks are supinely backing this trend, worried that a couple of noisy protesters will roll up to their AGM in a koala suit. My God, he's a little thinker, isn't he? Yeah, it's just another example of when people are all for the free market when it supports the companies that they want to win and then all against it if at any point there's something that happens that they don't like. Yeah, if it suits them, it's okay. If it doesn't suit them, well... Bad. That's right. It's not so good. But um, he ended up, by the way, Boswell ended up saying, if we let an unelected finance industry set the economic and export policies of this country, who will be next? Oh, Zeb, doesn't that terrify you? Who will be <laughs> next, Zeb? Who will be next? Oh, gosh. I was just still thinking about the the other thing that you were saying about this defence group that have come out and the fact that that's another circular issue of, like, yes, climate change is going to cause more conflicts, but also wars and conflicts tend to cause enormous environmental damage as well as the human cost. So yes. it's another example of what we have been coming back to in this conversation of more and more circular things that are damaging the environment. And, and, and with climate change, water is going to become more and more a, a real problem in, in terms of people clashing. I mean, the Middle East, he, he quotes Middle East, and that's, it is a problem there. And we know that in the occupied territories, for instance, uh, the, the settlements, the Israeli settlements, the Zion settlements, uh, are, taking the, are taking the water and virtually... The, the the rubbish they they end up with the water they flush away is the ones that end up with the Palestinians and it's already causing major problems there. Oh yeah, awful. Yes. On the other hand, uh, a Commonwealth Bank shareholder is taking the company to court. This is you know he says banks shouldn't um, be financing coal. Well, the other side of that is a Commonwealth Bank shareholder is taking the company to court to gain access to documents detailing its decision to finance oil and gas projects, despite their potential to breach the Paris Agreement goals. And it's a federal court case, and the head of Melbourne Law School's Climate Future Centre, Jacqueline Peel, warned it could provide a new avenue for shareholders seeking to hold companies to account for their environmental commitments. She said, Professor Peel said targeting the institution's financing fossil fuel projects was part of a broader move in climate litigation to target the businesses and individuals sitting behind the companies directly involved. Uh, 
to be successful, the, the Abrahams case, that's the name of the shareholder, Guy Abrahams, mm-hmm. uh, will need to convince the court that his application stems from a genuine exercise of shareholder rights and not for any proper purpose. The courts have rejected similar applications before after deciding they were attempts to get documents to help develop class action claims. A CBA spokesman declined to comment, but uh, the, the guy Abrahams is seeking to inspect all documents created by the bank in relation to their gas projects and to gas projects and the fossil fuel projects for the purpose of complying with its environment. So that's an interesting one, and we'll see where that case gets to. But uh, that at least is uh, the other side of what Ron Boswell was talking about. Poor old Ron. Uh, and just to finish on this note, because we, well, I think we're running out, we better get on to our, our guest, whoever that's going to be. And uh, the, uh, but just to finish on this, because last week I mentioned how sharks and rays were being forced, or particular ones were being forced further south and into deeper waters, and it was really threatening. They were becoming quite endangered because of climate change. And the same thing's happening on the Western Australian coast. The coral species, coral species living in the pristine reefs in the Kimberley and offshore regions are in danger of disappearing or moving south to cooler waters if urgent action is not taken on climate research. This was uh, climate change. This was a research from the Curtin University. And it said coral biodiversity on WA's tropical reefs will significantly reduce with many coral species likely to disappear. If the water continues to get warmer, corals and associated marine species will no longer be able to survive. So that's an, you know, a further, yet again, another problem with the whole climate change issue that unfortunately our government can't quite see. Mm-hmm. And in fact, of course, we know the Environment Minister, Susan Lee, um, some weeks ago, went across the world to convince the World Heritage Body that they, they should not declare the Great Barrier Reef endangered. And she came back and was, said it was so successful. Wasn't it good for us all that it wasn't declared when, in fact, of course, it is endangered. But Yeah, that is just so depressing. And... Yeah, because she's also, she's also appealed against the, 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 or at least is challenging the case that those young people took up that said she had a responsibility to them in terms of climate change to future generations and she's challenging that as well saying she doesn't have that sort of responsibility at all yeah and of course there's this amazing uh, acrobatic flair that climate deniers are now pulling of saying that climate action is making our younger generation anxious or something rather than actually climate change being the factor that are making people worried and anxious no 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 it's it's the fact that we're acting on it i have no idea how they're managing to spin that but somehow they are yeah they they manage somehow Uh, of course the i think the that the young people, school kids, have been protesting and getting onto the streets. I think that's been the most wonderful advance in in the whole fight against you know, against the government over this in a long, long time. It's they've been magnificent. Mm-hmm. But there we are. Look, I think we better move on to to our guest. Um, so we'll take a quick break. Um, a quick break on air as this goes to air of about one minute. But in real time, Zim, it's going to be a break of about 16 hours or something. Yeah. <laughs> if we're honest with our listeners, with this ridiculous situation where we're pre-recording again. But anyway, um, look, we'll leave it there and we'll come back and we'll have our um, very special guest after this break, Zim. Accented women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accent women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the... How the can country. people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are, two, where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR.
We're back on city limits, and um, look, I want to just re- make a redress something we didn't do yesterday, though, because I think the listeners now know there's been a long gap. The minutes minutes a break on air was actually a long sleep in the meantime for us. Mm-hmm. Um, but yesterday, when we first did this, we didn't do this, and Zeb, you should have reminded me. It's awful. Here we go. I hope you can hear this. That's the pouring of the tea. So we've got the ritual out of the way. Thank goodness for that. Um, our special guest, though, um, we couldn't name yesterday because we didn't know who it was, <laughs> as we now put the show together finally, is um, Professor Paddy McBall, adjunct professor at Monash, Paddy Moriarty. Uh, Paddy, um, I've got a few things I want to yarn to you about, but um, you've been writing a book of late, have you not, using up um, making the most of lockdown? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's just on, uh, it's, it's one of the books, the Springer Energy Briefs, and um, it's about energy and it's about renewable energy and specifically it sort of takes aim at the uh, so-called green green economy. Um, I'm one of the few heretics who think that renewable energy is a good idea but don't think it's going to easily replace fossil fuels. This is a minority position. Um, You know, Europe and so on have equally got on this thing that um, changing energy systems is, is about as is no more difficult than changing your your petrol type or your or your tea brand it's it's a bit more complicated than that what i'm saying is that we won't ever be able to have anything like the energy use we have at present with our with our fossil fuel economy which is about 80 83% driven uh, all total energy is about 80, 83% fossil fuels and replacing that is not going to be easy at all or even possible. Well, that sort of makes intuitive, intuitive sense. Um, but in the sort of nitty gritty details of that, is that because uh, coal fire generators can provide a base load that is just not possible with battery storage? That's partly it. Uh, I normally give four reasons. One of, one of course is that at present, because we live in a, basically a fossil fuel economy, any renewable energy that is generated, the inputs are largely from fossil fuels themselves. Now, if fossil fuels have a um, higher energy return, um, in other words, higher energy return on energy invested than, than the renewable energy, then that's a subsidy, an energy subsidy that, that, that will disappear when, as fossil fuels are phased out. The second point is that... Um, the only two viable, or the only two renewable energy sources that are available in quantity are solar, um, especially PV, and wind. And both of these are intermittent sources, which means that we're going to have to have storage. Now, any time you transform energy and store it, and, and especially if you then transform it back to electricity, you have an energy loss. So um, at present, of course, what is happening is that the... Is that the uh, our uh, fossil fuel generation of electricity is just fitting in around whatever renewable energy we have, but that's going to that's going to disappear, and storage is going to mean that our energy return on energy is further dropped. The uh, third point is that um, renewable energies use a lot more materials per megawatt of uh, of capacity than than other fossil fuels. I mean, fossil fuels a lot of the energy, a lot of the materials, of course, are just the ones you burn. But renewable energy uses a lot more copper, uh, concrete, steel, and of course these um, uh, exotic elements than do than than do uh, uh, fossil fuels, and these have a very high energy cost for mining. But they also have what we call uh, ecosystem maintenance energy. In other words, if you mine, you make a mess. If you want to clean that up, you're going to have to expand energy. That should be included as part of the energy input for uh, energy production, whether it's uh, renewable energy or whether it's uh, fossil fuels. So that's the third one. And the fourth, of course, is that uh, the, the quality of the resource, the renewable energy resource, uh, falls as we extract more and more. At present, only a very small amount of our total energy production is renewable energy. But if, in fact, we have to say we, we did try to provide um, roughly 600 exajoule, that's the present total energy, world energy consumption with renewable, which would have to be mainly wind and solar, then uh, 
the energy quality would fall. That is, the uh, the average wind speeds that we we could rely upon would be less than they are at present, where we where we pick the best sites. With solar, of course, there's so much of it that that's not the problem. The problem is how much solar is near our load centres. I mean, there's a lot of talk about using the the Sahara Desert, um, the uh, undoubted solar resources in the Sahara Desert for um, generating electricity and then sending it to Europe. Several problems. First, um, countries don't countries are, norm, are normally very close to 100% self-sufficient in electricity. Uh, if you take, say, places like America and Canada, they both just exchange across the border. And the same with Europe. Um, they don't want to, I don't think they'd stomach um, sending electricity from several thousand kilometres a day uh, away from, from countries which may be hostile to them and, and could cut it off at any point. Second, if you generated electricity in the Sahara, You'd have to build a town, of course, if you're talking about huge uh, plants. You'd have to build the town. You'd have to supply them with water. You'd also have to supply water for cleaning the um, the, uh, the solar arrays because the Sahara is one of the key areas for uh, dust, which fertilises the ocean and so on. And you can't use salt water for that um, because salt water just leaves a deposit on the would, would leave a deposit, a salt deposit on the cells, and anyhow, it would rust out your structures. So you have to get clean water. If you're talking about the interior of Sahara, you'd have to pump uh, fresh water in. How would you get that fresh water, given that um, the coastal areas of uh, North Africa are already used their full supply of fresh water? You'd have to desalinate it. How would you desalinate? Using energy. Uh, then again, if you have to, if you want to convert the uh, to send to Europe, you could do it by a power line with undersea cables, or you or you could convert it to hydrogen. The way you convert it to hydrogen to send is by um, electrolyzing water. Again, you'd have to use fresh water. So there's a lot of problems with trying to get electricity from places like um, the Atacama Desert in Chile or uh, the um, Tibetan Plateau, which which apparently has one of the best solar resources or North Africa and the Middle East. So um, although we, the solar energy is abundant, uh, it's not quite readily available near the load centres. In Germany, which has uh, a paper written a few years ago, um, in regions of modest insulation like um, Germany or Switzerland, uh, one author cast doubt on whether, in fact, uh, the energy return was enough to pay for building um, the uh, solar cells and setting up the um, the supporting infrastructure. Um, so there's a lot of problems with trying to switch to renewable energy. Mm, that's that's, that's uh, rather depressing news in some ways, Paddy. But you did mention about the fact that these, um, that say um, wind turbines and, and, and even some solar require um, inputs like, con you mentioned concrete. And I did want to raise, one of the things I wanted to raise today because there's been talk about uh, low carbon concrete and, and move toward greener buildings. And I'm just wondering, because um, there's a housing project in, in being developed in Northcote that's had a, actually got a grant of 84 million from the federal government's green finance fund, and it plans to to uh, build this estate using what it calls green concrete or low carbon concrete. How do you achieve that, Paddy? Or is, is it viable to? I'm not sure. Um, look, I, I'm very sceptical about these green cities. I mean. When I review a lot of papers for the international journals, and a lot of them are from nationally based, and, ba and the, you know, they're from government grants for the research, and basically what the governments want is how can we come out of the smelling of roses? And nobody looks at climate change. In fact, all our environmental problems like uh, biodiversity loss, um, fresh water availability, but especially uh, biodiversity and climate change and so on, are global problems. Just trying to solve it in one country is, is not very, looking at it from a one country point of view is not very helpful. Um, for example, uh, with uh, energy use or carbon in Europe, the point is that Europe and North America and Australia have, have a industrialised, which means that we're importing a lot of carbon intensive goods from places like, like China. So in other words, we haven't really cut our carbon when you do a, uh, proper accounting. Um, 
it's just we've just shifted it elsewhere. And the same can apply with water or any of the other um, e inputs. You know, for instance, um, every time Australia exports, uh, in this case, Australia exporting uh, wheat to China, we're actually exporting our water as well, needed to grow it, and so on. So, um, look, <laughs> this green cities and so on, look, I think there's a lot we can do, but I think we have to say, look, this is uh, whatever, we cannot afford to have a growth economy any longer. All the nations in the world are still pushing the growth economy. We've been doing it for a century. For instance, we had our first uh, IPCC, that is Intergovernment Panel on Climate Change report in 1990. And what have we done since then? We've just increased our, our carbon emissions and our energy use and our, and our GDP. We've got nowhere. Uh, insanity has been defined as doing the same thing again and again after it's shown to fail. This is what we're doing. We're being insane. It's not going to work. We just have to stop and rethink how we can get a, a, a socially just and, and ecologically sustainable path out of this mess. Yeah, the, the, the recent, speaking of the intergovernmental panel, um, the recent report came out and we all know that, you know, it, it's, it's, it was pretty dire. Um, your comments on that and where we should go with it? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> it's sort of like, it's, it's an advance on the others, but it's, um, it's getting more and more uh, saying, you know, well, the, the IPC is more or less saying, well, we're not going to get to 1.5 degrees C. What has been found is, see, we've already got about 1.1 uh, that's the world as a whole. Uh, the land surfaces have heat, heated up a bit more than that. We're already about 1.1 degrees Celsius above uh, pre-industrial. Pre Let's take 1850 or something. Now, what we found is that the uh, is that the ecological and or the the damages that we get are non-linear. In other words, the amount of um, uh, uh, adverse effects we got in the first not to 0.5 degrees C, um, we're not as bad as from the uh, 0.5 to 1 degrees C. We're seeing these now, you know, for instance, in Canada, they broke their temperature record by five degrees Celsius, extraordinarily, you know, or the uh, fires in the US North or the floods in Germany and so on, it's already hitting us. And the we're presently in the um, uh, one degrees to 1.5, area and that's going to be worse than 0.5 to 1 and 1.5 to 2 will be even worse again. In other words, it's non-linear. It's not a, a, a temperature rises with carbon dioxide. That's empirically what they've found. But the adverse effects are non-linear. In other words, they increase faster than, than the temperature change does. We're really in, in, tarta, really in uncharted territory. You remember the old maps and they said, used to say, here be dragons, right? That's where we are. Yeah, and uh, and of course, they, you know, they, they, I'm a lot of scientists say that you know what we're putting in the air now will start having an impact in about thirty years' time. So, in fact, you're, you know, what you're saying is that this is going to just keep continuing, um, even uh, even if we do take strict measures right now. Yeah, look, um, carbon dioxide has a half life in the uh, atmosphere of I think it's thousands of years. Uh, Methane is fairly short-lived in the atmosphere, but most of the carbon dioxide we put in, as far as historical, um, you know, as far as policy is, is, is concerned, it's there for, you know, the next few hundred years. So, uh, and this, this brings the question of carbon legacy and, you know, who should re reduce first. What you find is that um, the OECD, the Organisation of Economic Cooperation and Development, which is mainly the wealthy countries plus um, Chile, uh, Mexico, and um, I think about the and the East European countries. Uh, they've been historically responsible for most of the emissions about up till now, but today um, they're only responsible for about a third of the emissions. So even even if the wealthy countries stopped emitting now, um, carbon in the atmosphere would still keep on rising. Um, the developed countries are getting pretty irrelevant for um, emissions. Or, or the historically developed countries are getting pretty irrelevant for the emissions. So although we do have to reduce, other countries are going to have to do it, like mid-level countries like China, especially China and so on, are going to have to reduce as well. But they're going to say, uh, you first, you know. Uh, one approach, of course, is to say, look, 
let's not take it on a national basis, let's take it on an individual basis. For example, um, what's his name, Elon Musk, to, uh, to promote his uh, environmentally friendly uh, electric vehicle, uh, flew the equivalent of six times around the Earth at the equator in 2018, right? <laughs> using using uh, diesel fuel, of course, in his private jet. So <laughs> they all want to go into they all want to go into space now. These billionaires to uh, obviously destroy another planet at the same time. Yeah, well, this is it. Um, every time we get on top of one transport mode, you know, like we made cars more efficient, and so people move to SUVs. Majority, I think in America now, it's about 70% of new vehicle sales are sports utility vehicles. And even in China and Europe, they're very, very popular and increasing. And then, of course, people thought, well, now, now we'll move to air travel, which is even more inefficient. And now they're talking space travel. So um, energy efficiency is not going to get us there. Uh, because, um, well, we live in a society that um, preaches efficiency. In other words, it worships efficiency, but it's based on, on inefficiency. Uh, I'll explain. For instance, you know, we develop an, an efficient uh, water piping system, which is um, from a transport point of view of um, energy cost per, you know, um, litre moved a certain distance is very efficient. And then what do we do? We move to bottled water, delivered in small trucks. In other words, we just, because it helps the GDP. And you can see this again and again, you know, um, for instance, milk. When I was a kid and probably when you were a kid, because you're a few months older than me, uh, remember we used to have, there was, just, there was just one brand of milk, it was called cow's milk. Go down to the supermarket today and there's 20 different types of milk, which is a great way of wasting it because, you know, there'll be four or five in the fridge, someone having special B and someone else having this and that because they never finished them all. So as I say, our economy is sort of based on waste but it does worship efficiency. It pays lip service to it, but it's not where we're at. Or, or take um, suburban leaf blowers, which must be the worst invention after the, after the <laughs> atomic bomb, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, go on. No comment, Patty, that's right. Yeah, go on. <laughs> yeah, right, anything else? I'm having a bad day, aren't I? Really no, you're, you're, cheering us, you're cheering us up. Now, when, did you have something to say at this stage, Zeb? Well, when you were mentioning the developed countries versus developing countries, I was just thinking of the other argument that because developed countries have had the opportunity to benefit from all of that carbon use, they have a responsibility to help developing countries and to put resources towards developing countries um, being able to reduce their emissions. And so even they, they still should bear the burden, uh, even if we are now not um, the countries. Yeah, look, I think what's got to happen is, um, as has happened, most, like, places like England, its energy use peaked, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. And the same with a lot of European countries. With the older European countries, their energy use and their carbon emissions are falling already. So if, if, as I say, we're going to have to move away from a growth economy, then the energy use in these countries will fall, which means that they'll have spare capacity. So there's not really much need for renewable energy in countries that have a huge fossil fuel infrastructure because they'll have spare capacity. So what we should be doing is supporting the countries that have to increase their energy use, especially, say, those very low energy using countries in Africa, and making sure that what that their extra capacity is renewable energy. That's where it's got to go, right? And ours, all we do is just keep reducing our, our, our fossil fuel use or our total energy use, which, which will be fossil fuel use. And, and one of the other industries, and it's becoming a big industry for a lot of people, is, of course, the offset industry where they, you know, they plant a tree somewhere and say, well, now we can just keep polluting. But that, that seems to me to be, um, and in fact, BP is an interesting one because they've recently bought their own offset company. They're charging other people, but they're obviously paying themselves to offset their own pollution. Um, it seems to me that offsets uh, just allow them to keep polluting, don't they? Well, yeah, offsets, it's sort of like, um, remember in the old days, in medieval times, they used to sell in, in indulgences. It was a bad idea then, it's a bad idea now. Um, yeah, look, this, the only people who 
making money out of um, you know these offsets are the banks, right? I mean, this is it. In a, in, a, in a growth economy, the name of the game is profit. None of it, like, you know, with these carbon taxes and all this sort of carbon markets and so on, they're not in it to reduce carbon. They're just there to make money, and it just doesn't work. So what happens is third world countries that were going to plant some forests anyhow now say, oh, we're doing it for the thing and try to get some money for it. So it doesn't really, it hasn't really helped. Mm. And also in the recent, the recent bushfires in America um, wiped out a lot of forests that were in fact part of the carbon offset. So uh, even what they paid for to carbon offset has now been burnt to the ground by the bushfires caused by their pollution. So it, it's a bit of a vicious circle. Yeah, and what is happening in the, in the Siberian forests is the fires are wintering underground. It's starting again, apparently, so, <laughs> with all the, um, you know, the, the peat and so on in the soil. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot being lost in, um, a lot of uh, carbon being lost in fires, yeah. And uh, they seem to be in, increasing in intensity and so on. You might remember in California, they had what they're worried about now is a double extreme event. Well, you remember in California, they had to fight the bushfires and the coronavirus. So the, um, the guys had to mask up. I think they were bringing in firefighters from Alaska and so on, but they had to mask up. And, uh, you know, it, well, obviously drought and heat waves are likely to occur together, but uh, what we're going to see is, you know, um, several uh, extreme events occurring at once, which is going to complicate the, the response to them. Yeah, and you also mentioned transport, Paddy, and I noticed that Kerry Shop, the chair of the Energy Security Board, uh, claims that the transport in Australia is going to exceed electricity production uh, in terms of pollution within a few years um she says we know this is really something that does need the government to start to more than um to having more of a look at and transporting um, emissions have increased 42 percent since 1990 and the australia institute said that um they may only make up seven and a half percent but they'll overtake emissions from electricity at 33 percent as the largest source of carbon pollution by the end of the decade well that uh, is that does that sound reasonable to you or well, yeah, I mean, predictions about the future, as we saw, if you have a look at the 2019 predictions about what 2020 looked like, they all missed <laughs> the key event, that is the coronavirus. Um, look, transport is extraordinary. According to my calculations, in 1900, um, you know, there, there was just a bit of um, railway transport, and that was all the vehicular transport in the world. I, I calculate that transport, global passenger kilometre transport has increased vehicle, has increased by a factor of 240 times since 1900. It's what um, uh, Adams from uh, London University called hypermobility. It far exceeds things like the GDP increase, the population increase, um, and so on, or the, even the energy increase. You know, for instance, we're using several people in Melbourne now travel about three or four times as far as they did in, um, say, the uh, late 40s. Did people think they were transport deprived then? No, they didn't. You know, it wouldn't have occurred to them. Um, what happens is that uh, the, the 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 dominant transport mode has its own logic. So, in other words, with with um, uh, fixed rail travel, as we had in the uh, until the forties, um, cities were strongly centred. Whether well, it's a good thing or not, I don't know. But uh, travel was highly concentrated at peak hour. Most of the trips were to, to or from the inner area because that's where the jobs were and so on. With the car, that, that's not possible because um, you just have too much congestion. So it leads to uh, suburbanisation, which in some ways is a good thing. But although jobs, shops, I mean, a, a, as you move to a service economy, the jobs tend to move to where the people are because you're trying to sell them things, education, health and so on, rather than manufacturing, which of course can be anywhere, especially if you're exporting. So, in a sense, the potential is there to, to reduce urban travel because of the suburbanisation of activities, but in fact, travel has increased through three or four times. Why is that? And it's because we've granted um, vehicular travel, we've granted convenience to car travel. We've said any point in Australia can be connected to any other point by car and you can go anytime you want and just park there. And so, and any speed, as long as it's under 80 or 100 kilometres an hour or something. So we're going to have to take away, though, 
those privileges, and that of course will lead to a reordering of priorities. Um, instead of car, public transport, non-motorised, it's going to be, have to be the other way around with vehicular transport, including public transport, picking up what we can't do by um, uh, non-motorised means. So, I mean, some cities have started banning cars from the inner area. And I think Austria, one city, Graz, I think, um, reduced the speed limit to 30 and 50 kilometre an hour in the, uh, in the city area and so on. So, and um, a lot of them are starting to give free public transport um, and so on, um, you know, road closures, restricting parking and so on. These are the sort of things we have to do. And um, this is much better than trying to increase, um, say, petrol taxes. I mean, if you, I mean, we could always get whatever level of travel we wanted to by increasing petrol taxes enough, but what you get is, is a nicer class of motorist, right? So, in other words, people have, everyone has 24 hours a day, but not everyone has the same income. It's much better to reduce the speed of travel, say by car, so that it, um, it matches that by public transport or even by walking, in which case you can, you can uh, reduce travel um, without having to have um, you know, exorbitant um, fuel taxes. I think fuel, um, fuel taxes will have to increase a bit, but mainly you need to do it by looking at the other areas. Um, the other reasons why car travel is, is, is so popular. One of them is that we've allowed it to be the fastest means um, between... But originally, people thought, look, originally people thought, oh, look, it takes me half an hour to go to, to work now. If I switch to car, it'll only take me a quarter of an hour. And that worked for a while. But then, of course, what happened was um, that, the, that the job they had has moved from the engineer and gone some, someplace else. And... You know, and um, shopping centres started up and so on. So the people, uh, the amount of travel time in Melbourne hasn't fallen at all. It's just it, we're, we're sort of on a on a yeah, treadmill because land use has changed and travel patterns have changed and we've got nowhere and we're, we're travelling four times as far. It's just so interesting what you're saying as well about convenience and um, I was just thinking that the growth economy isn't just a growth in like size, things produced and things consumed, but it's also like an increase in the speed of everything that's done. And then we begin selling conveniences like fast food or like microwave meals and faster ways to travel. And then people need them because they're working more so that they can afford it just it's like this big circular thing and it just kind of feels like it's a treadmill it's what i was saying before about um you know we worship efficiency but of course we don't want it in other words a factory tries to be efficient um for instance you'll find that let's say a, a factory's um making coca-cola it's going to well let's say it makes its own bottles plastic bottles it's going to find an efficient way of doing that but then it wants you to throw them out. It doesn't want them recycled, right? Uh, you know, reused. So that's the way it's, we're, we're really, um, as far as what we want is people to waste things so that they spend more. That's, you know, that's what um, commerce is, is about. But the factory itself will uh, try to be efficient. In other words, interesting, once sold, interesting. It's an interesting point, that Paddy, because um, the, the big supermarkets claim that they're going greener and greener all the time, and they're doing everything to, to help the environment. But there's two products that I buy in their house brand, which in recent months have gone from glass to plastic bottles, so I don't buy them anymore. Uh, but those who do, so you know, I can't see how they're getting greener when they convert from glass to plastic. Well, the green is just a slogan these days. I remember it, uh, it was about what, 10 or 12 years ago, I gave a talk at Melbourne Uni. Um, each of us had three minutes to talk. And uh, to make sure we didn't talk over that time, they had a guy on drums. He'd start softly after three minutes and then get louder and louder. But it Literally drummed out, Paddy. Yeah, so I finished on time. But it was, it was on the 17th of March, which you'll know about, Kevin. And... Um, so, so I call my talk the wearing of the green. <laughs> and I discussed how green had become a very fashionable colour these days in, in, in contrast to uh, 200, 200 years ago when it was 
when that song was written, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, even BP says it's now called Beyond Petroleum, but if you have a look at the bottom line, they get it from selling petroleum, not from whatever else they do. You know. Called bloody pollution, it's called. Um, <laughs> yeah, or bloody profits. Uh, Trudy, we're going to have to wind up here. Time's up, but um, look, thanks for your time today. And, um, and Zeb, look, thank you, because you're doing a great job technically keeping this show on air this week. And uh, all right, on that note, Paddy, you've cheered us up no end this morning. I have sunshine, that's me, yeah. <laughs> but look, thanks. Right, thanks for your time, Patty. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.